there's one principle I've distilled out of my product experience, which is you build technology for humans and you don't, it's not humans for technology, it's the other way around. And so the mm -hmm. idea that we make technology something useful, something constantly simple. Hi, and welcome to the June podcast. I'm your host, Enzo, co-founder at June. In this show, I'm talking to the most inspiring product and growth leaders out there. We'll share their tips on how to launch and grow your SaaS. No fuss, no BS. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, OG, and welcome to the podcast. How are things? I am excellent. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Likewise, really excited to have you here and chat about building great product companies. So a few words about yourself. You started your journey in product management and some product marketing at Microsoft, where you worked for 12 years. That's pretty impressive. After that, you started your own company called MindGull for two years. Do I pronounce Min it correct? Mingle. Mingle. Okay, Mingle for two years. And then you went back into product in senior leadership responsibilities this time. First at Spiceworks, a marketplace that connects the IT industry. And in 2016, you started to specialize into communication products. You joined Atlassians, where you worked for two years as the head of product on Atlassian Communications, which includes products like HipChat and Stride. And then you move as the CPO of Canonly for two years. Then Twitter as the head of product on creation and communication, where the scope included tweets, DMs, space, communities, TweetDeck, and, and a few more. And for seven months now, you're the CPO of Ad Typeform. Did I miss anything? Is everything correct? Mostly. I think you skipped a small stint at uh, Bridgewater Financial, the biggest hedge fund in the world. Uh, but I think that's mostly accurate. I had this one that I actually crossed out because I was like, how am I going to tie everything in one interview with you? You know, it's it's every experience is critical. You know, Bridgewater was a huge, huge um, addition. It was so out of left field that it was a huge addition to my product knowledge and my experience. So I, I try never to forget it because of that. Can we talk about that for a second? What did you learn there that inspired your product uh, perspective? Well, I don't know if you know Bridgewater, but it's a very interesting financial firm that is run in, uh, I guess, what Ray Dalio will call a principled way. But all kinds of good and bad stories that come out of the topic of Bridgewater because they had some very atypical practices, like recording conversations all the time, something they called diagnosis. You know, they kept testing people all the time. You are constantly being evaluated and the tone of things didn't matter, just the content, so people could be rude. But I think the thing that I took out of it the most were a few things. One is it changed slightly how I think about people in terms of work and how to think of and hire people. It increased my tolerance for like the idea that you have to listen to everything and not be offended by every little thing was very important at Bridgewater. And I think that was that's helpful. I think to an extent that can be helpful. You know, it thickens your skin, makes you more susceptible to feedback. Those were some of the big the big things I took away from it. That's an interesting one. I didn't expect the conversation to start it this way, but I can, I can see a lot of application in, in product. Does it mean more documentation? Does it more, more does it mean more peer-to-peer -peer reviews? W what does it translate into really for you in your day-to-day? -day? Everyone carried around an iPad supplied by the company and every interaction you rated people. Just by talking to them, you were supposed to rate them. It was very dystopian. The conversations again were very tough. You know, people spent a lot of time questioning each other to see if they had empirical knowledge of the things they said. And because there was a, a big premium on empirical knowledge at Bridgewater, um, you, you know, you couldn't just say, oh, I've known this thing for 
20 years. Therefore, that's why I'm doing it. People will challenge you. In a software company, that would be very helpful if you move the culture more towards that. Uh, because, you know, obviously software in many ways is the best application of building a software company is some version of a scientific method. And Bridgewater was hyper-focused on that. But I would say the Bridgewater's mistake was that it did not acknowledge the reality of people. The people still have to build shit. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, including a company. And if you don't acknowledge the reality of the nature, the human, the human condition, in your institutions or in your, um, you know, in your company, you kind of miss it sometimes. Because in the end, if that's not acknowledged and nurtured, it everything breaks down. Hundred percent. You're building for the humans, and you're building with humans, right? You can't de-acknowledge it. You have to lean into it. <laughs> So, so there were many interesting steps in your career. I think it's really one of a kind. Uh, so Microsoft, w one of them, of course, and then PLG companies, we're going to talk about that in a second. Twitter, uh, you know, a lot of people speak about Twitter these days. Would you be able to share maybe one or two learnings that you had along the way and how they shaped your approach to maybe product management in particular? You know, I tend to be very introspective. So, so I've learned a ton about different things. I think the most interesting thing about being a product manager, the thing that I love the most about it, it's a discipline that rewards multiple levels of the skill set. So in any given day, I am thinking like an engineer, but I'm also thinking like a philosopher, a historian, someone who understands behavioral economics and psychology, and someone who understands how, you know, AI models are built. And, and these are all actually important skills to being a product manager. Actually, I think of product management in five dimensions, five skill dimensions, leadership, communication, delivering results, PM craft, which is a grab bag of customer uh, science, and then finally creativity, right? Creativity and intellectual horsepower. So if you think about those things, some of them are quite disparate and some of them are quite deep. You have to learn a lot. You have to be like a little bit like this. If you're going to be a great product manager, you can be a good product manager. You're going to be a great product manager. You have to be really open. It's like being an artist in a way. You have to open to the world and to all kinds of influences. So all this is to back down to the things that I learned. You'd be surprised at the things that I've learned the most that are most useful. So I'll give you an, in no particular order. The day that I figured out that when you talk to people, you should talk to their heart, not their head, was a huge unlock for me as a product manager. It helps shape a lot of my relationships with peers, with people who work for me, and so on and so forth. I always try to hit the heart and not the head. Because you can convince people that you're smart all day long. If they don't feel anything from you, they won't remember you. You know, maybe a little bit like what Elon Musk does these days. He just, everyone thinks he's smart, but so what? Like, do people care <laughs> he is smart? They may, may not. Anyway, I think that's blurring the lines a little bit. The other one of the other things I learned is that when you when things transition, you have to pay a lot of attention because things become shaky. It's like the thing things that politicians know for a long time about people in the military. When there's a change of regime, there's fragility. When there's a change in politics, there's fragility. But in products, it's the same thing. If you know a new CPA comes in and all comes out some fragility, the things you have to do to make sure that things continue or things don't continue. I learned it the hard way when I took over a team from my boss and I just assumed things were good and things weren't good and things started to fall apart a bit. So that's one of the major learning. I could go on, but I think those are 
two quick examples and I don't want to take up all the oxygen. Now, these are great examples. And uh, do you think the hard piece also apply to customers, talking with end customers, or is it more like the, the peer relationship, uh, the, I don't know, the relationship management inside the, the company? I think it applies. Uh, I, I, I learned it in the context of galvanizing people, right? Of so mm. internal leadership. There is a leadership insight and a peer insight. But I think over time, I've learned that this is the same thing, uh, even for customers. There's one principle I've distilled out of my product experience, which is you build technology for humans and you don't, it's not humans for technology, it's the other way around. And so the mm -hmm. idea that we make technology something useful, something constantly simple that can be relied on because we understand how humans function, how they think, Everything basic, like how people read from, at least in most of the world, this way, sort of scan a page that way. Like, you need to know that. If you're going to design something that people will use, you need to know how people behave with it. What that translates to is that even in talking to customers and communicating, you have to hit the heart as well. And you can see people do this really well. You can see companies who are really good at telling stories. And you can see their outcomes, right? If they have a halfway good product, the outcomes are maybe somewhere between one and two X other companies who are doing exactly the same thing. HipChat came out before Slack, but Slack told a much better story and spoke to the heart of people and engaged it. And that, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but that made a huge difference in the outcomes of those two products. And so I think it does extend to customers, long story short. That's a fascinating one. Yeah, I didn't want to touch on HipChat because <laughs> might be might be a bit painful what happened, but uh You, you seem like, uh, it seems like you've, you've, you've collected a lot of learnings and you're, you're happy to share about it. You've moved from like B2C companies to B2B and, and back and forth. Are B2C companies better to talk to the customer's heart? Is it something that B2B companies should learn from? Or is it, maybe it has nothing to do with the B2B, B2C aspect. It's really more a DNA or something else. I'll start with the big picture. At the end of this decade, I don't, I think the line between B2C and B2B is going to be super blurry. You know, I have this principle, you know, I guess the learnings from my products will sort of thread through this whole conversation. B2B companies, your customers are just consumers who are at work. They're just one person. They just work and then they don't work, right? Economic theory, we work to afford our leisure. And so because they're the same person, why do we categorize it as B2B and B2C? because we're focused on the end user, right? Like in, in the end. So my point is at the end of the decade, every company will simply just be a B2C company. The context of where they are, when they use you is the only thing that's going to change. But I don't think people will think about that as a governing principle of how to label a company. What that means is I think that actually B2B companies are very intimate with the way they talk to their customers because there are fewer of them. And so they can scale communications with them. And I think B2C companies struggle to talk to the heart of their customers because there's so many and they're so diverse that they haven't a chance in hell of really connecting to everyone's heart or even to 50% of the hearts because there's so many. You'd be surprised when I was at Twitter, talking to customers to understand the average of customer needs was the hardest thing in the world because we had half a million customers. But you know, at Calendly or at Typeform, ability to find five customers that are representative or 10 customers that are representative or 50 customers that are representative of most of our customers is actually relatively trivial. 
if that makes sense. And so our ability to talk to the heart increases, like, not necessarily exponentially, but an order of magnitude. I think this is also a realization. I know this is a future realization. It's not how people talk about it, which is that fluidity of customers from the business world to the personal world is the reason why after paying little attention to the labels of companies that I join, I join knowing that I want to be customer centric and I join because of the mission <clears throat> that I'm trying to execute on. And that's all that really matters to me. That whole B2B, B2C thing doesn't really matter to me. I love this one. Could you, before we move on, could you just give an example of what it means to talk to people's hearts? Do you have like one concrete example or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's actually um, simple. What do people care about, number one? You have to sort of understand it. Like, I'll tell you where that came from. When I was at Microsoft, Microsoft gathered some of the smartest people in the world I ever saw. Microsoft was really good at recruiting smart people. You know, they would start with the tier one schools and scoop up at people, people who had been essentially filtered from the time they were children. And then they would go to tier two and tier two schools and try to repeat the same thing. So a lot of brilliant people, you know, Harvard, Ivy League, whatever, all over the world, India's best schools, with, with Microsoft. What that meant is that all these people were in a pool and they would compete with each other to be excellent. This, some, this was the first time some people ever came anywhere near second in any evaluation in their entire lives. Uh, so it was a constant sometimes competition to seem smart because uh, that was a currency, intellectual horsepower. And so people at Microsoft would talk to each other and they would try to convince each other they were smart masqueraded as customer conversations or debates about features and, th and things like that. But in the end, in contrast, when you talk to the heart, you have to know what people care about. They don't care about you. They don't care how intelligent you are. They just care that you're talking about what they care about. You know, acknowledging people. You know, people like to be acknowledged. It, you know, people like to be seen. And people can be seen and are so, maybe so selfish they don't see you. But it doesn't matter. And so you have to listen, reflect people so that they are seen. So those two things, what do they care about and whether you acknowledge who they are and where they're coming from. And you have to practice that. And so that's that's what I mean. And I think that applies to peers, it applies to customers at the same time. Before, before we had this chat, I was looking into your LinkedIn and I thought, oh, wow, such a, such a perfect journey, product journey. But <laughs> then I know that behind the curtains, things are always harder than they seem. And I'd like to I'd like to reflect on that with you if you if you're happy to share, what has been maybe one of the challenge as a CPO maybe in the last the last years, and how did you um, overcome this one? What did you learn from it? Look, in in our profession, there's always challenges. If it's not interpersonal, so between you and a CEO, you know, it might otherwise have a thriving business win behind yourselves, but you might have a shitty relationship with your CPO and with your CEO. And then, you know, and then that's a challenge. Or you can have a great relationship with your CEO and then the markets are against you. The winds are against, you know, it's hard to hire. It's not COVID and not COVID. And you have a different challenge. One particular turn I, I made when I left Calendly, I stopped briefly at a company called Parsable. And it felt like a little bit of a mistake in a sense that I quickly figured that out that wasn't necessarily what I was wanted to do at that time if that makes sense. I won't go into any details just because, you know, confidentiality, but there many things that made me think, oh, wow, this isn't what I should be doing right now, right? And 
you know, for a lot of people, they might continue because they're like, oh, I got to stay at least two years at a company, it will look bad, blah, blah, blah. But I already come to a point in my career where I make quick decisions like this so that it's fair to everybody. There's also one of the things I've been reflecting on recently is the challenges of working in a founder-led company. Because I've met so many peers who struggle with this. And it's a little known secret that bears study, right, for future CPOs coming up of what they need to deal with and what they need to prepare themselves to deal with. I don't think I see a lot of literature out there. So ultimately, I'm gonna sound like Bruce Lee, you have to understand that being a chief product officer or anything of this nature is challenging constantly. And so what you have to do is literally build challenge muscles. You have to build frameworks for thinking about different kinds, whether it's human, or professional or technical. Um, you just have to have the Zen to deal with whatever comes at you, I think ultimately, because it will keep coming. So it's like almost like building the muscle for uh, accepting the challenge and uh, and try to overcome it with a, a new angle, a new perspective on things. Correct. Thanks for sharing this one. Is there is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you before you started as a CPO? The first thing you hit, maybe. Focus on relationships. Yeah, relationship with your other C-suite, focus on those things. Don't just focus on execution and getting things done. Make sure the relationships that allow you to be effective are nurtured. I mean, that seems obvious. It might even be obvious at below CPO. That is a very important one, at least at that level. Uh, and, you know, some of those relationships include with the board, with your first team, with your with your own leadership team. Very, very important. You, you said efficient. Uh, does it mean like making sure the, the right output comes out or also does it mean, I don't know, other no, no. things like people feel good. People feel good about you. Like your CEO right. feels good about you. Your CFO feels good about you. Your CRO feels good about you. The board members who are critical feel good about you. Uh, your leadership team feels good and secure and supported. All those things are important. No, no I, I'm kind of like tempted to call this podcast the, the feel good CPO or something like that. <laughs> that, would be good. that would be a good title. Uh, we under, you know, I always index on human. We under, under index on that. We're just people in the end. People with experience and skills and values, but people. And nonetheless, what's your secret ingredient then for motivating people and inspiring people to deliver, you know, great work, but also just be happy and fulfilled as humans? One of the things, which is what I think about as a second order or third order derivative of speak to the heart, people work for purpose. I mean, people work for money up to a point and they work for purpose. You know, the great human need, aside from being in community, is to have purpose and so if you want to inspire people you need to explain the purpose that is entangled with the work in a way that they can understand and inspire them so why are you a type form really mm. what are you doing in the world why are you a twitter what how does the world change because we exist you have to tell that story and i think if you can tell that story really well, you can inspire people. But how do you make sure you don't cross the line with personal things, right? If they tell you I'm here because, I don't know, I want to get money to pay my, I don't know, mortgage. This is 
like where the line gets blurred, right? Where, where do you put the limits? Maybe there is no limits. Maybe that's the right way to manage. Like I said, people work up to a point for money and then they work for purpose. And so what that mm -hmm. means is that it's an overlapping or an encompassing set. And so what you want to do is you want people to move from the basic thing they care about to the inspirational level so that they can their work can be inspired. So yeah, I expect people working to pay their mortgage. But where's that extra energy, energy boost come from? It's purpose. And so you have to pay them money for their work, give people a path to be paid more money by doing even more excellent work. But over and above all those things, you need to give them a reason to be inspired. And you need to tell that story. Do you think it's the your job or the job of the leader to create that energy and that inspiration? Or should it also come from the people? What if people don't have that motivation? It's both. And if you look throughout history, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, good leaders always created that energy. They give people a reason to believe. And actually, it's not as hard as you think. People want to believe. You have to understand. It's like the relationship with a comedian. A comedian walks up on stage. You're not like, oh, this won't be funny. This won't be funny until they are funny. No, you say they are funny and you want to laugh until they bomb. <laughs> you know what I mean? So people want them to succeed. And so people want to, they want the story. People want the purpose. And so it's, it's not, you know, it's not like people are really working against you. And so I think it's the job of the leader to do it. Exceptional leaders are good at this. But, you know, in the end, you can only bring a, a you know a horse to the water. You can't force it to drink. There always going to be people who are skeptics who never, ever buy into the story or people who are super functional in their relationship. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. We will always have those in humanity. There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they move things forward quite a bit because they help people not be fantastic all the time. But in fantastic in terms of fantasy. As long as you acknowledge that those people exist and they'll never be convinced, um, but most people will potentially, then that's fine. This is just humanity. This is almost philosophy. It's not even about organizational theory or anything. That is the, the nature of, I think, the human condition. That's a great one. And and uh, you, you touch on a little bit on community. I'd love I'd love to bring uh, to tie the two topics we had. So the one we just had with community. So the the purpose with community. Sometimes it comes from community. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's related. You worked at Canly. I used to be a product manager at Intercom, and I had the chance to work with many people at Canly. And I just found something very unique with these people. Like always, I was kind of mind blown about their personality, their hobbies. I remember a PM that was a writer, an actual writer, not just like someone writing a Medium newsletter. Kim, yeah, I remember. I, he used to work there, for me. There was something, right? Kim, Kim Wampo, yeah, I remember. Exactly, exactly. And, and there was there is something about this company in terms of culture, which is extreme. I feel I feel very unique, right? Did it create this sense? Like, was there some sense of belonging because of the community there? Did you learn? Uh, did, is there something you took from there that you tried maybe mo to move to move forward in other companies you joined? Well, first of all, some of that community was created by me. It wasn't like it wasn't by chance. So the people you're running into are people I hired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm saying that it was designed. I hired people for those things you valued. I literally hired them for it. So that's number one in, in creating community is selection. So yeah, I, I do that everywhere I go. I try to hire <laughs> exceptional people and I try to create community. Do you believe that exceptional people have passion or hobbies that they push to the limits? Is it one of them, one of the criteria? 
or in the I, singles I maybe? I think so. I, I always ask people about what they spend time outside work doing. I think it's, a, it's an exceptional indicator of what people are like, really. I always ask this question in interviews. It's not like I'm selecting people for strange hobbies, but I am trying to find non-traditional markers of exceptional people. Got it. And do you do you look yourself up to some people? So you're, you're, you're like we talk about looking down the ward and how you've been supporting these people and and hiring them or helping them grow or just putting them all together as they figure things out. Is there anyone you look up to that you you would be able to share with us? You go up on my wall, you'll see my current wall of heroes. Oh. Right. Those are the men yep. and those are the women. And uh, on my wall is uh, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, Bill Gates, Andy Grove, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. And for some reason, although I'm going to probably remove him, Elon Musk. And on the women, there are Sotomayor, Billie Holiday, Beyonce, Notorious RBG, mm. uh, Okonjo Iweala, who's the current lead of the World Health, no, the International Monetary Fund. One of my managers, for when I was nothing, who really encouraged me, she's still alive. And Gabby, Gabby, who's the Olympic, whatever. So, those, are, those are the people who are inspiring me at the moment. So very exceptional people, right? I mean, the manager, your first manager too, but then very exceptional people. Yeah, my manager, sure. she was exceptional. She still is. And only one tech person, right? Or two, uh, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, right? So you're not only inspired by, inspiration doesn't come from tech. Andy Grove was, was the person who, who made Intel what it, it is today. So he's tech too. Um, tech too Einstein, yeah. Einstein is here. So I guess more generic science. But no, I don't take all my inspiration from tech people. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your list. And uh, that, that seems like the question was staged almost. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not staged. <laughs> yeah, we printed that before. I love it. <laughs> okay, uh, a bit more. Thanks so much for sharing. And I mean, all these people are great. I'll, I'll share the names after a while. So if people want to fo follow up some of them, they're mostly very famous. So I guess people know them. W one thing about you a bit more um, uh, around stuff you've been writing. You talk about literature earlier on. I read that you started to write a product management book on PLG. Yeah. Um, could you give us a, a sneak peek? What do you think hasn't been written yet and what angle do you want to cover? I'm trying to capture a couple of different things happening at the moment. One is, I think product management is so important to the world. Uh, product managers catalyze technical investments. They shape it towards the customer so they become more effective. So your investment of a million bucks in engineering turns into half one and a half million bucks if you apply product management to it. It's an intensifier. So I believe that product management is important for people to understand, but it's also the most mysterious, uh, uh, the most mysterious profession <coughs> in building software because there's no school for it, at least not at the moment. All just all private enterprises, you know, product school, and maybe like a thing at Carnegie Mellon. And even the way I've talked about it, you can see that it's an amalgamation of skills. 
right? So it's mysterious for no reason. People constantly ask me, how do I become a product manager? And it's just chicken and egg. I don't have product managers here. They won't let me in. And how do I get in? You know, so every product manager hears that stuff all the time. So I want to explain to people in what product management does and what it does and what it does well in a way that is accessible, not just definitionally, if that makes sense. Two, I believe PLG is the way that everyone <clears throat> will build and go to market in a, in a decade. And I want to explain what's behind it, not just the label. It is. But more importantly, I want to put all these things together and say, here's how to be excellent at building amazing software companies. Right? I don't know every single situation that revolves what you want to build, but if you listen and look at these things that are assembled, you'll have the building blocks for building an amazing software company. And the message, the book is targeted at CEOs, CFOs, CPOs, basically the C-suite, but also the vertical of product management people so that they can be really good at what they do. I think about it as the tentative title is building rocket ships. Like how do you build fast growing valuable companies with product management as the anchor? And so that's that's sort of my pitch. I, I feel like the world needs this. Just I've been a product manager for over 20 years and I understand the power of what we do and how we can unlock and how we can work with everyone else in the company to build really amazing things. That seems uh, exciting. We're looking forward to, to, to see that one. Is there, is there, we could talk about product management and PLG for hours, but is there one big thing that people misunderstand at PLG, uh, on PLG? And also just to, just to call it out, you worked at Canonly and now Typeform, which are, I think, two, two of the most successful PLG companies out there. They seem to have the secret sauce, narrow job to be done, you know, variety features. Um, what, what do you think is misunderstood on PLG? What, what do you think is the, because right now it seems to be more like a, a movement. How is yeah. it going to change the world uh, in the next decade? Yes, yes, yes. So PLG, I think, is currently misconstrued as a specific go-to-market centered in the product. But I don't see it necessarily that way. I mean, I do see it that way, but I don't see it only that way. I think PLG is really a call to action to focus on customer behavior, customer journeys, and customer workflows across mm -hmm the product, but also the storytelling of the product and the sale of the product. So even if you have a sales team, you can be PLG. Even if you have a vast marketing team, you can be PLG. And of course, this, the product itself should do the same thing. So I think of <coughs> PLG as a doubling down on customer understanding and using that to craft customer experiences in the product and outside the product. There, there is this very famous talk of uh, uh, Joachim Lesha, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it well, from, from Typeform, where he explains on stage at Saster that most of the costs of running his company comes from the free users pinging customer support. Do, do you need a free plan to be a bit, to become one of these company? To what extent do you need to support the free uh, the free users? Do you have a short answer on this one? If free customers turn into paid customers at a reliably high rate, then you need to support them. If the free customers do not turn into customers at a reliably high rate, you should even question why, whether you should be freemium or not, or the design mm -hmm. of your freemium. So I think that's the answer. Last question. 
and I, I know we are beyond time. If you don't feel comfortable, we can cut this one. So recently, Typeform pricing has been a bit more restrictive. I've been a long time user of Typeform. Um, now it, uh, the, you can only, if I'm not mistaken, you can only have 100 responses with the basic plan. How does it relate to PLG for, for, for Typeform? Does it impact the PLG motion? Is it a new phase of the company? What's your short take on this one? It does. In fact, the shorter answer is I am unhappy with the current pricing and we're changing it. And so this okay. year pricing will change to become and address some of the feedback we've heard from customers. Again, remember PLG is about being customer centric and innovating in the direction of the customer. So our customers have told us a certain portion of our customers have told us what they're unhappy with in terms of the pricing. And so we will change it, PLG style. <laughs> Great. I'm looking forward because I'm one of these uh, uh, frustrated customer, to be honest. And I'm a P9 uh, family customer, uh, employee, right? So I'm like all uh, all lean into uh, into using uh, the product. Okay, yeah. we are at the end of the episode. Thanks so much for, com for coming. I really love the chat. Well, I, I loved it too. And I, I hope this is one of your best episodes. <laughs> it's it's definitely is so i'll add all the references you mentioned in the description if people want to follow you or engage with you where where should they go uh you follow me on substack and follow me on twitter awesome i'll i'll, I'll give the links for sure thank you so much and have all a great right. day cheers thank you for listening to the june podcast if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five-star rating and subscribe this episode is powered by june for a better way to do product analytics visit june.so 